Good morning to you, Trinidad and Tobago. It's Freedom 106.5 FM. Welcome to Human Impact. I'm your host, Tusca Martinez, and I'll be with you until 12 o'clock. And now we step into our feature, Doctors on Call with Dr. Rambokas and her special guest, Dr. Dylan Thomas, as we step into this session for this morning. Good morning to you all. Thank you, Tosco, and we welcome today Dr. Dylan Thomas. He's a spinal consultant, and good morning to our listeners out there. And today we're talking a little bit about spinal disorders, osteoporosis, and pathological fractures. So good morning to you, Dr. Thomas. Dr. Thomas, I, I think um, we can barely hear you. So while he's um, working on his um, audio, I just want to introduce Dr. Thomas. He is a medical board of Trinidad and Tobago certified spinal surgeon. He's a consultant spinal surgeon in the regional health authority. He treats adult and pediatric spine pathologies ranging from disc herniation, spondylolisthesis spinal trauma, epidural spinal tumors, spinal infections, degenerative spinal disease, to complex deformity spinal reconstruction, such as coliosis and also revision surgery. He originally did his undergraduate medical school at the University of the West Indies. After graduating, he spent eight years in the postgraduate regional University of West Indies orthopedic specialty training program, publishing several research papers in the process. In this program, he worked alongside local and international neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons, hence his passion for spine surgery developed quickly. Upon completion of his postgraduate training program, he furthered his training in complex spine in the North Bristol NHS Trust at Southmead Hospital, as well as Bristol Children's Hospital in the UK. He also trained in spinal innovation, microscopic, minimally invasive, advanced stealth navigation and robotic techniques at these institutions. He is the latest addition to the excellent team already existing at Princess Elizabeth Center, working alongside medical director, Mr. David Toby and Professor Vincent Arlett. He plans on further developing the practice of spinal reconstruction surgery in both adults and pediatrics. Since 2019, upon returning from the UK, Mr. Thomas works alongside two senior neurosurgeons in Neuraxis team in St. Clair Medical Private Hospital. Together with Mr. Steve Mahadeo and Mr. Robert Ramcharan, the entire gamut of intra-extraspinal pathologies requiring surgery are done. From 2020 to present, Mr. Thomas, more fondly known to his team as Mr. T, was employed as a consultant spine surgeon in the Southwest Regional Health Authority, serving half the population of TNT. He works as a complex spine surgeon along neurovascular neurosurgeon, Mr. Narendra Ramnarain, and senior neurosurgeon, Dr. Philip St. Louis, in the neurospinal department of the Southwest Regional Health Authority. So we welcome Mr. Thomas. I I think he still we can barely hear you. I'm not sure if is it better now. Yes, we can hear you now. All right. 
So, Mr. Thomas, how long have you been practicing medicine and what was your motivation in particular for choosing orthopedic and spinal conditions? Well, basically, um, I'm in the practice for over 17 years, just over 17 years. With regards to why choosing orthopedics, I think it's basically based on personalities. You know, when you're a young doctor, you work under consultants in the hospital. And one of the first consultants I worked with was an orthopedic consultant, uh, Mr. Lusang. You know, and he, you know, a type of maverick surgeon, but he was pretty good. And um, seeing him operate in theater initially drew my interest. But when I went on to do more spinal surgery, it was because of a neurosurgeon, Mr. Ramchand, who I currently work with now. He introduced me to a lot of spine surgery when I was his um, acting registrar. And then finally, it was cemented when I started to work with Mr. Toby and he did the scoliosis surgery and corrected a bent spine and made it pretty straight. And that to me was really oh inspiring. So spinal surgery is really nice. It is complex, most of it, um, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a bit married because you have a bit of bony spinal work as well as some neural work. And the margin fair is pretty small. But you know, once you, once you choose your patients wisely and you do the best for them, I think it can achieve pretty decent outcomes and, and achieve patient satisfaction. So could you tell us what exactly is the spine, like the parts that make up the spine and um, what the, is in the middle of the spine and its functions? All right. So basically the spine, we should start with the function. The spine helps us to walk. So it's good in locomotion or mobility. It helps us to carry loads, whether it's our backpack, briefcases, or anything that we want to use our appendicular skeleton to hold. And it also protects the neural elements, which comes from the brain, is really the spinal cord and the nerve roots and nerves that exit the spinal cord. So it has a protective mechanism. With regards to the spine as well, we also should have a stable spine. And a stable spine means that all these little bones that make up our entire spine it should be stable and not move in a strange manner to cause us any pain or to cause any deformity. The spine also has um, several parts to it. The neck region is called the cervical spine, the chest region, the thoracic, the lower back is the lumbar, and then there's the sacral, which is the lowest part that connects actually to our pelvis bones. And now when we talk about spine, we talk about spinopelvic unit being one unit that works in unison. And a good functioning spinopelvic unit helps us to have an energy efficient walk or gait and helps to keep us balanced. Right. The last part about spine, I'd say, is that there are three systems in the spine, the active system, the passive musculoskeletal system, and the neural system. The active system is like our muscles which hold our spine and hold us upright. Um, the passive system, is the bony parts, like the vertebral body. There's the joints and capsules that are multiple. And there's also ligaments. And then the neural parts, as I said before, is like the spinal cord and the nerves. And what are some of the common disorders that you encounter in your practice when you practice these spinal um, medicine or <laughs> surgeries? Okay, if we have to classify um, the different types of spinal disorders that I encounter, 
basically in the younger patients and some older patients is trauma to the spines so we have a lot of fractures and the fractures when they are unstable most of the time will necess necessitate surgery there's degenerative spine which is very common in the aging population or the older or older um, patients which is very commonplace that is a that those aging population patients make up a bulk, bulk of the practice and um, there's infection so patients with uh, comorbidities like diabetes and any immunocompromised state tend to get infections of the spine and that could affect the neurology make them weaken the legs or arms and there's tumors which we encounter in all of all professionals medical professionals will encounter tumors at some point in their development so the tumors of the spine, whether it be benign tumors or malignant tumors, and um, metabolic diseases like osteoporosis, which usually manifest with fractures of the spine. So there's a whole multiple, um, a wide spectrum of spinal disorders that we see. So some persons are born with certain spinal disorders. Um, what is pediatric or adolescent scoliosis? What is scoliosis in particular? Ah. Well, scoliosis, um, actually the word is derived from the Greek word scolios, which means bent or curved. Scoliosis in particular is measured objectively to make a diagnosis of it. You have to have a standing x-ray of the thoracolumbar spine, and we measure something called the Cobb's angle. And that's the two most tilted, the angle between the two most tilted um, cranial and caudal vertebrae. And when that angle is more than 10 degrees, we, we, we come to the diagnosis of scoliosis. However, I like to think about scoliosis as a deformity in four dimensions. In terms of, yes, you have the curvature, which is in a more coronal or anterior posterior plane. You have the axial rotation, and that gives rise to sometimes a rib hump or a lumbar hump in patients. And sometimes you have deformity in the sagittal plane and then finally, time. It is a time-dependent condition in my view, because if you don't address it early, and that's why screening is good, if you don't address it early, the curve will worsen over time. And once the curve worsens over time, it, it could impact on a young child's breathing and give them a type of thoracic insufficiency type syndrome. Big curves and um, will affect the cosmesis of a patient, whether it be male or female, no one would like to have a curve, a really bad curve in their in their back, right? And in the older, as one gets older and have adult scoliosis, it, it could give cause to more degenerative and neural neurological conditions. Um, also, with regards to scoliosis in the young, there are lots of ways to describe it. But if you describe it in terms of age, you have a very young scoliosis, so infantile or juvenile, and this comes under the umbrella of early onset scoliosis, less than eight years old. And then you have the adolescent or teenage idiopathic scoliosis in the older kids. And then you have adult scoliosis. So the thing about scoliosis, though, is that many times we are not sure why it actually happens, even though they do, did a lot of genetic tests and stuff like that. But in the subdivision of scoliosis, in terms of etiology or cause, you have idiopathic meaning that we don't know why it happens um, but then some patients are born 
with scoliosis called congenital scoliosis, second commonest type. And then there's the neuromuscular scoliosis, like in the palsies and the dystrophies and all that, which is more rare. And then there are more syndromic ones, like Marfan's and neurofibromatosis and stuff like that. So there are many different ways to classify. But once, you know, once you see a curve, a, a really curved spine, I think it needs to be treated in some form or fashion. And does scoliosis, the location differ between uh, adults and pediatrics? And do adults usually get it and it's acquired? Oh, that's a good question. In um, pediatric uh, scoliosis, you can have scoliosis occurring in any any part of the spine. Cervical ones more tend to happen in the congenital, uh, but it's usually in the thoracolumbar spine. But you could have different curves presenting in different parts of the spine. Main thoracic curves, double curves, triple major curves, thoracolumbar, lumbar curves, and the list goes on, on and on with different classifications for it. But in the adults, the adults, if you have to classify them, it's scoliosis. The adult scoliosis could either be scoliosis that was not detected when they were a child. So whether they had it on the upper spine or thoracic spine or lower spine, which is the thoracolumbar spine, versus the purely older persons who get it in adulthood, th th those scoliosis sense up more in the lumbar spine. So yes, the, the position could vary based on the age. And does the treatment vary as well? For instance, would we more do conservative measures when it comes to kids as opposed to adults or like physiotherapy and so forth? Right. Well, with regards to um, scoliosis and its treatment or management, um, with kids or even with adults, even though one could do surgery, a spinal surgeon could do surgery, they try to do what's applicable for the patient. So in the kids, if, the, if it's detected early, and the curve is uh, small, so there are ranges for curves and treatment. So a mild curve, less than 20 to 25 degrees, you could observe it, right? Active observation, so you see the patients regularly, monthly, uh, probably like six monthly intervals to make sure it doesn't progress or deteriorate. Versus if the curve is between 20 to 45, 40, 45 degrees, and it's moderate. And when it's a moderate curve in, a, in the pediatric population, based on that is the greatest time for growth um, in the preteen or teenager. So you'd want to put on an orthotic brace, a type of corset um, type brace. And the bracing together with compliance of the patient and the parents, the kids and their parents, because the brace, the optimum results for the brace is usually 23 hours. And it sounds like a lot, it is a lot. Um, but the more they wear the brace, is it better it prevents the curve from getting worse? Even if they wait for 16 hours, it's pretty decent enough. But anything less, the curve will deteriorate. Once the curve deteriorates and crosses like 40 to 45 degrees, and we as spinal surgeons, I will use different parameters to assess the growth potential for the kid. Um, but once you reach that level, we recommend surgery. One, because it's, easy, it's easier to do in a young person. They heal really well and they mobilize and start to walk really quickly because young people are, you know, they have everything going on for them. With regards to the older scoliosis or adult scoliosis, this, the, the, their curves are very stiff as compared to the pediatric population where the curve is flexible. So it's always more difficult to do a very huge operation in an older person. They are more prone to complications 
happens. The tissue is not as young and healthy. Healing is longer. There tend to be more pain. And um, scoliosis surgery in the adults has a pretty high complication rate. So you only do it if it's uh, absolutely necessary. But with the advent of proper training techniques and whatnot, we minimize these complications and we can treat with it. Right. Well, thank you, Dr. Thomas. We just have to take a short commercial break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about degenerative spinal conditions and osteoporosis. No problem. And good morning to you once again, Trinidad and Tobago. Let's go back to Dr. Rambokas and her special guest on Doctors on Call. Thank you, Tasca, and we welcome back Dr. Thomas, and he's a spinal consultant. Before we move to degenerative spinal conditions, um, a lot of times patients will ask, or even persons um, who have had a fall or say be in a motor vehicular accident, and there's possible trauma to their spine, whether it be cervical or lumbosacral, wherever it may be. And they always ask the question, should we move the person? Right. Well, I think the, the first thing um, onlookers should do is call, call for help. Because um, many times in MVAs, motor vehicle accidents, you know, there's crash cars, gasoline. It depends if they crash into another vehicle, into a wall, into a light pole. You have to make sure the surroundings are safe. So call for help. Um, first, it is always a good thing if it is safe to approach. but. In the case of moving patients from uh, a crash vehicle should stabilize the, the head and neck. Um, if you're not trained to do so, you could actually inflict a secondary injury after the primary insult, and that will make things even worse. So it's, it's a difficult question for this mere onlookers. I think you should call the rapid response team, where there's, in the rare instance, a doctor or some medical personnel who is accustomed to you know, taking a patient out of a crash vehicle once it's safe around, but onlookers should be very careful if they try to help because they can inflict more injury when they try to move patients with spinal injuries that they might not know of. That's what right. you got to that. Yeah. So what exactly is degenerative spinal condition? So a lot of times when patients have a lot of pain, um, we do x-rays and uh, the radiologist report will have spondylosis, spondylolisthesis. So like, uh, what exactly is spondylosis? What is this disease that can cause neck and back pain? Right. Basically, I think a lot of people heard the word arthritis. People tend to think arthritis affects the hips and the knees only, but spondylosis is arthritis of the spine. And degenerative conditions is a wide spectrum of conditions. But when you think about aging and degeneration, you tend to go hand in hand. A lot of these um, arthritic conditions that afflict the spine usually originate based on the intervertebral disc, which is the part in between two of the big vertebrae bones in the spine. It starts to degenerate naturally as part of aging or from degeneration and the discs, in essence, it, it, it has a liquid or pulpy part inside and a fibrous part outside, and it helps uh, act as a shock absorber in our spines. Um, but when that disc dries out, the bone ends become sclerotic, like an arthritis, and um, it becomes very stiff. So it, the, the segment of the spine becomes stiff, 
And our spine has two main motion areas, which is the neck area, the cervical, and the lumbar area, which is the lower back. So when we have this unnatural, or I should actually say natural aging process causing the spine to become stiff, is a ripple effect. So the other parts of the spine degenerate as well, which are the joints in the back, the ligaments thicken, and in a sense, arthritis sets in in the spine. And when there's like less blood supply to the different areas of the spine itself, and you get certain products of low oxygen from the blood there, they get pain, as well as if you have spurs or osteophytes being formed from arthritis or thickened ligaments, the nerves pass in the spinal canal and exit through foramen or little canals on the side. So this arthritis or spondylosis or degeneration, whether it's from the bulging stiff disc from the front, whether it's from the thickened ligamentum flavum um, from the back and on the sides, or whether it's from osteophytes or bony spurs or facet joints that are big and thick and squeezing on the exiting nerves or the, the big nerve sac could also cause different types of pain, whether it's pain in the neck, pain in the lower back, pain going down the arms and pain going down the legs or buttocks. And pain manifests in different ways because it even could affect patients when they try to walk, they could only walk a short distance and the pain comes on. And I know based on the country patients, they might say Junjuni. I don't know if you ever heard that. They'll say they have tingling and numbness going down the legs. They can't walk far. They have to stop and sit down. But they talk about they could do groceries because they could bend forward and push the shopping cart okay. So spinal arthritic conditions or degenerative conditions could manifest as pain in the skeleton or spine itself. It could exist as pain going down the limbs. It could manifest as pain, numbness, and tingling going down both legs and affecting walking in a big way. And these patients, most of the time, would need surgery. It also could damage the nerves so much so that other than causing pain and altered sensation, it could cause weakness. So if ankle or foot or big toe could get weak, it could get a foot drop, or it could get weakness in your grip if it's in the upper limbs. And objects fall out your hand, you cannot hold the pen, women cannot do their hair you know so you lose dexterity and sometimes in young folks if they have degenerative uh, advanced degeneration from say they were in a previous accident or something sometimes this could bulge and cause something called corticoina which is a very rare condition but when that happens you cannot you know you tend to retain your urine you cannot so you could you could lose bowel and bladder function and you could get numbness by the private parts so Spinal conditions could manifest as pain, weakness, or affect your bowel and bladder. Say inability to pass urine and stool. Yeah, can be it's affected. Of the stool, yeah, but that's more sequelae of it. So, um, how do we usually manage these patients? Like in an early stage, how can they prevent some of these changes? And do supplements help? besides physiotherapy? Right. I think because of lifestyle of lifestyle of people now, it is causing a lot of degeneration of the spine, both in the neck and lower back. Why I'm saying that is if you look at it now, we tend on an average day, you tend to sit in your car to go to work for hours because of the whole traffic situation. 
You tend to sit in office on the job if you're not active for hours, looking at screens. Now everyone has a cell phone. So yeah, if you look at people use their cell phone, they don't try to keep the cell phone close to eye level, like how you should do. They tend to arch the neck and look downwards and put a set of flexion force on the neck. That abnormal posture could and could cause degeneration of his spine. Being overweight, not eating well, back, back pain has a direct link with obesity and weight loss. So you must keep your weight within normal measures. And I, I, I spend a lot of time talking to patients, you know, talking about weight tends to be a bit uncomfortable for some patients, but I think you should be honest with the patient. And weight loss, the first thing the patient will tell you is, Doc, I can't walk, I can't exercise because of pain. But you have to let them know that weight loss, most of it is from your diet. If you eat well, you eat properly, eat a balanced diet, you'll naturally lose the weight over time. And then your spine and neck will be in a good position. So weight loss, activity modification, you try to get your exercise in, or even if it's a short walk for 20 minutes in the morning, stretching, yoga, you know, yoga, Pilates, you can do a lot of things on your own and just keep your muscles flexible. But I will say weight loss, modifying your activities, taking sitting breaks. So when you sit in a half hour, 45 minutes, you should get up, take a walk, take a stretch. If you're using your cell phone, keep it up as close to eye level as possible to put less stress on your spine, right? And once you can incorporate exercise in some form or fashion for at least five days for the week, no matter how difficult it may seem. So doing these simple things is good for the, for the, for the persons who do more labor intense activities, proper lifting mechanics, wearing your support braces and work, using help to lift heavy loads and all these things are important. So you wouldn't, and trying to avoid falls when they go up ladders and scaffolds and whatnot, wear safety equipment to limit traumatic injuries as well. At what point um, would you say surgery is necessary? Persistent pain, inability to pass stool urine, um, or persistent weakness in limbs? Okay. Well, with regards to degenerative spine and uh, necessitating surgery, patients could either present um, non-urgently or electively or as emergency, emergency type patients. So I'll do the emergency type patients first. When a patient presents with some type of neurological deficit or weakness, and when they have severe pain or, or, or an unstable spine coupled with this pain, we usually use investigative tools, whether it's an x-ray, but MRIs now to me more or less is like the gold standard for management. Once you have some type of neurology, whether it be pain or weakness, MRIs are so important now is we need it in spine as common as an x-ray. So we make a diagnosis based on the patient's clinical symptoms coupled with what the investigations like MRIs can confirm or CTs. Um, but once we have those two, coming together, then we could plan and go forward with whatever surgery it is. And surgery really in spines is for one, if you have severe pain coming from, uh, I'll say a biomechanical or physical cause and physiotherapy is not helping it or the medications or the conservative measures. So failure of conservative therapy plus MRI that is confirming the diagnosis that could warrant surgery. Or two, 
if you have an unstable spine causing nerve compression, that could warrant surgery. Or three, you have cordyquinous syndrome where you have bowel and bladder being impacted, that could warrant surgery. And then there's the whole gamut of, um, well, I don't want to stray really, but tumors, infections, and all these things. So basically, you have to tie in the patient's clinical with the diagnostic like MRIs, and then you can make a diagnosis, and then you do the surgery to plan your surgery around um, dealing with whatever problem that is inflicting the neurological status of the patient. Right. Um, we have to take a short commercial break now. When we come back, we'll be talking about traumatic spine fractures and osteoporosis. Your solution to talk is here. The Charmaine Ford Show is on Freedom 106.5 FM, hosted by TNT's very own Charmaine Ford. It's innovative, informative, educational, and it's fun. It's not just talk, it's a whole lot more. It's all about making that connection with you. Join us on Sundays from 12 noon to 3 p.m. We're bringing the conversation to legendary celebrity guests, increasing awareness and finding solutions on different topics and issues, all while keeping it exciting. Call the Freedom 106.5 FM hotline and join the conversation at 627-3223 or 625-2257. Listen to the podcast on our website, tbcradionetwork.co.tt forward slash Freedom 106.5 or tune in for the live stream on Freedom 106.5 FM Facebook page. The Charmaine Ford Show, Sundays from 12 noon to 3 p.m. on Freedom 106.5 FM for talk that matters. And Freedom 106.5 FM is bringing you all the action of cricket, West Indies, CG United, Super 50 Cup 2023. Tune in for daily reports of the riveting action at 7.50 a.m., 1 p.m. and 5.05 p.m. on Freedom 106.5 FM. It's 31 matches featuring the biggest names in West Indies cricket as eight superstar teams battle for the cup. Join Freedom 106.5 FM for all the updates and catch the action of Shia Hope, Shimron Hitmaya, Sheldon Cottrell, Nicholas Puran, Andre Fletcher, Darren Bravo, Sunil Narayan, Rakim Cornwall, Kieran Powell, Brandon King, Shivnarayan Chandapal, Jason Mohammed, and more. Listen to Freedom 106.5 FM for all the exciting updates and highlights. We're back live on Freedom 106.5 FM with 15 minutes to the hour of 10 o'clock. And we step back inside Doctors on Call with Dr. Rambogas. Thank you, Tasca. And again, thank you to Dr. Thomas. And we're talking about um, the spine and spinal disorders, as well as osteoporosis and fractures. So let us dive a little bit into um, the spine itself. You know, a lot of times uh, patients talk about um, they have a disc problem, you have a herniated disc. And could you tell us exactly what is happening there? Right. Um, herniated discs or bulging discs or slip discs, as it's commonly known, is a common spinal occurrence in, um, in, in our population or any population, as a matter of fact. It tends to happen just like that, naturally, with a, with a weakened disc from the pathophysiology that I discussed before. Or sometimes, as little as a sneeze or cough or lifting loads abnormally could cause the disc, the more gel-like part of the disc, to rupture through the fibrous part. Or even sometimes for prolonged sitting, abnormal, if you're overweight, abnormal sitting 
for long periods of time would load your disc abnormally and cause a disc to rupture. And this ruptured discs could either be a small rupture or bulge, it could prolapse, or it could break off, or it could even break off and go down. That being said, once the disc irritates the root, that is the nerve root that is passing next to it, or exiting close to it, it causes something called radicular pain or radiculopathy. Now, in, I'll say in about six out of 10 persons, you can manage them conservatively with proper pain medication, um, some multivitamins, uh, activity modification, and the pain would subside to a significant extent. But in about 30% to 40% of persons, this wouldn't work. Or if it's causing something like called equine or severe pain and uh, dysfunction, so the person cannot sit, they cannot sit to use the toilet, they cannot sit to watch TV or anything, so it's really impacting on their quality of life, then it will necessitate um, an operation. Um, the operation, um, it's a, one of the more fun operations for us to do. Uh, basically, you could either use a microscope to do it, or you could do it open technique, or you could do minimally invasive techniques. So, or, so you could divide it into open disectomy or a micro disectomy. It's one of the commonest uh, surgical procedures we do for spine for the, for the ruptured disc, and it involves making a small cut, removing a small piece of bone, moving the nerves safely to the side to access the disc that is bulging or ruptured, and then you can carefully remove the ruptured disc fragments without damaging the nerves. And with that, you can get a significant improvement in terms of the patient's pain. Um, now, patients might ask you if I'll be 100% perfect. Well, you know the answer to that is, well, no, um, because you don't know in, in, in the patient's mind what they mean by that. So you have to manage patients' expectations. I usually tell them you'll get a significant improvement in pain relief, and you'll be able to go back over time with normal activities of daily living. But you will have to do some form of physiotherapy to strengthen the muscles if they were weak to even start with. But the outcomes are usually good for prolapsed discs. Right. And how common are traumatic spine fractures with spinal cord injury? Right. Well, in, in, in my practice over the last three years in San Fernando, I might have probably less than five spinal cord injured patients, spinal cord injury type patients per year. Now, people might say that's a small number, but you as a doctor will know the significant impact on a young person getting in a motor vehicle accident or a serious fall or a gunshot injury, and then becomes incapacitated. Spinal cord injuries, uh, they could either be uh, complete injuries or incomplete injuries. The complete injuries are that's really terrible because you lose total power. You cannot walk really, you cannot do anything useful with your limbs, and you cannot control oftentimes your bowel and bladder. So think about somebody who's bed bound in a pamper, not being able to move either the hands and legs or the legs, so either quadriplegic or paraplegic. This impacts on the psychological aspect of the patient. It impacts on the family of the patient if the patient was a breadwinner. It affects on the workforce ability of the patient. It, he or she cannot go back out to work. And then they're totally depressed because who would want to live lying down, getting infections, chest infections, ulcers, and all that suffering basically for the rest of your life. And your family have to take care of you. Relationships often break up too. And the children, you know, affected as well. So 
spinal cord injuries could be very severe if it's complete. And even if it's incomplete and it causes a significant deterioration of their power, it could have a similar effect than if the injury was complete. So road safety and work safety is important. You're having too many motor vehicle accidents causing these injuries. And it takes a severe economic burden on our society as well, because less persons, less work, they cannot work. Um, the, the funds or the money from the taxpayer to take care of, a, of one spinal cord injury patient amongst the hundreds of thousands of dollars going from hospital admission to bed stay to expensive surgical procedures and to aftercare. Ventilator dependent, some of them. So it's, it's very costly. So it's just all around not good. Right. So switching gears a little bit, so let's talk a little bit about um, osteoporosis and people always mix that up with osteoarthritis. And what is the difference between the two? Right. So in Lehman's terms, osteoarthritis is the degenerative condition of the spine. Osteoporosis, um, there's a whole definition, but for those who remember the physics, is really decreasing bone mass per unit volume. Uh, basically, it have, and, and there's a deterioration in the microarchitecture of the bone. That is a lot of technical terms, but for the for any person, just think about the bone itself is not as dense or strong as it should be to support the spine and to protect the spine and nervous elements. So you have a weakened or very less dense type bone that is fragile, and it breaks under normal energy. So if you fall, like say you walk and you trip and you fall, once you don't fall awkwardly, you'll just dust yourself off and get back up. But with someone with osteoporosis, they could be walking or doing activity, like running if it's an athlete who's anorexic, or if it's someone, an older person has osteoporosis and they fall, and they fracture their bone. So they'll fracture the wrist, the hip, or the spine, and this now could affect the normal daily activities in some form or fashion. So decreased bone density and, a, and weak microarchitecture leading to pain or fractures is osteoporosis. And it's more common in older women who have gone through menopause because of a lack of estrogen. What is the most common location of um, osteoporosis fractures? Right. And just before I answer that question, I want to talk, just mention briefly, but then the old postmenopausal women, remember athletes or, or young ladies, anorexia also. So it can happen in, in either each extreme. But um, basically, osteoporosis fractures commonly affect distal radius, that's in the upper limb, that's by the wrist, so wrist fractures. It could affect hips, so hip fractures, and then the person cannot walk and they'll need a hip replacement. And then with regards to spine, you get spinal compression fractures of your thoracic or lumbar spine most commonly. Right. Yeah. And for instance, how can persons prevent osteoporosis and what treatment options are available? Okay. So um, prevention of osteoporosis, I will say to start with, modifying like a proper diet. So it goes back to lifestyle having a proper diet, proper nutrition, and exercise, because exercise, whether it's walking or running or any form of exercise, actually stimulates bone formation. So you, you will strengthen your bone naturally once you do some form of exercise. 
and you wouldn't weaken your bones further once you're within your normal BMI or body weight. So that's, those are the two simple things to start with, diet and, and exercise healthy lifestyle. Avoiding smoke, excessive um, alcohol consumption, um, avoiding smoking, um, as well as with proper lifestyle, it prevents you from getting diseases like diabetes and all these other medical diseases that could impact on your organ systems because once you don't have proper calcium metabolism, your bones could also get weak. So you want to try to keep free from disease that could afflict your organs. So healthy lifestyle is a very um, good way to go. With regards to treating osteoporosis, um, other than modifying lifestyle and activity, diet and nutrition with exercise, certain medications, you should keep in contact with your doctor because certain medications like steroids um, could also make your bones pretty weak. Now treatment really, if you, you could break it up into exercise, nutrition, or conservative measures, medical, like certain medications, and the medications to me will go into two broad groups, drugs to prevent bone loss and drugs to stimulate bone formation, right? As, and you mentioned low hormones, so preventing bone loss, hormone replacement therapy or SIRMS help, calcium and vitamin D also help to prevent bone loss. And some of the endocrinologists or general practitioners will be uh, prescribed bisphosphonates and drugs like that to also prevent bone loss. The bone stimulating drugs, they're more advanced and pretty expensive like periparatide and strontium and all these things. Um, but those are the drugs you could use. And then finally there's surgery. Now surgery, is, is, is we tend to hardly use um, operations. The operations will really come in if the spine is one unstable or if the patient is in too much pain and the medications um, are not helping. So the surgery could either be open techniques it could be minimally invasive techniques. It could be vertebroplasty or kyphoplasty. And this minimally invasive technique, you actually put a tube into the fractured bone and you insert a type of cement. So you actually improve the density of the bone by using this PMMA cement. If it's multi-segmental, sometimes you have to use the cement through screws and rods. But if it's just one level or two levels, you could do minimally invasive and put the cement into the vertebral body. And then it will reduce the mechanical pain suffered by the patient because these patients complain of severe back pain. And do supplements work, for instance, calcium, vitamin D, omegas? Well, I think vitamin D and calcium is proven to prevent bone loss. So um, with omega XL, <laughs> and with a multivitamin, so vitamins are good. <laughs> but I'll leave that up to the uh, to the, to the general practitioners. But vitamin D, usually 800,000 international units has been shown to prevent bone loss. And um, calcium, 1,200 milligrams is fine, together with, as I said, the, the, the bisphosphonates and these other types of drugs. Omega XL, if, it's, if the patient is happy, that's fine. But it's not a cure for osteoporosis. That's what I would say. And glucosamine and chondroitin, for instance, for osteoarthritis. Um, once again, it's the, 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 the studies of the glucosamine and conjuration. I know they're doing it to assess cartilage and joint fluid and all that, but there's no high level evidence to say that that would restore your bone. Right. So we're switching gears a little bit. Um, what are exactly pathological fractures and um, where are these most common fractures found and how can they be treated? 
Right. So pathological fractures, interesting group. Pathological fractures are fractures that occur due to underlying um, disease condition. So the underlying disease condition is what is what is the cause of weakening the spine or the vertebral uh, segment, motion segment. Usually when we think about pathological fractures, they're very serious and um, it, they could either be classified as uh, tumors or malignancy. And the tumors of malignancy could either be benign ones or very malignant type tumors. Then there's infection that could weaken the bone. And as we spoke about osteoporosis, so metabolic conditions as well. So I'll focus now more on tumors because many times, tumors and infection, many times a patient will be going about his or her day-to-day activities and suddenly they go off their legs. They can't walk and they have back pain or pain in the neck area. Um, now pathological fractures are missed on many occasions because there's not a really significant inciting effect. It's just that the patient is walking one minute and the next minute they can't walk. Now, doctors in the accident and emergency, general practitioners or any doctor should be wary of a fracture of low energy in an otherwise normal looking person. You should investigate this carefully and, and once they have neurological deficit, so they, they assess the power of strength in the legs or arms and they cannot, it's, it's, it's weak. Other than an x-ray, more importantly, you should order an MRI scan or send to an institute that could get an MRI scan. Nothing is wrong with getting a second opinion if you're not sure. Because when these things are missed by the time they are detected, oftentimes it's too late and the tumors already metastasized and spread and whatnot. But with that being said, the sad truth about pathological tumor fractures is oftentimes when there's tumor in the spine causing the fracture, it's highly likely that the, the tumor has already spread to the different organ systems. So many times it could end up being stage four. But it's not all doom and gloom because together with the multidisciplinary teams, with uh, oncologists, hemoncologists, uh, medical doctors, endocrinologists, um, infectious disease or whoever, once we come together, we can manage after we stage the tumor we, and we work on the prognostic staging as well. Some of these patients could have a good like six to 12 months or even a one to three year survivorship based on what type of primary tumor it is. So you can treat it with multidisciplinary team. You can treat it with early detection and the use of MRI imaging is very important as well as CT scans. And once you involve the whole multidisciplinary team, you're keeping proper education of the patient and the family, explaining everything to them because it's a long process. You can treat with them. But these patients, um, because of their immunocompromised state, the complication rates for after the surgery, after the surgery is pretty high. So the surgery is one part, but the surgery is very complex in these patients. But the second part is the nursing care afterwards and the rehabilitation process afterwards because they tend not to heal pretty well and they're more prone to infections and ulcers and stuff like that. Right. Um, can autoimmune disorders cause pathological fractures as well? Yeah. Um, if you think about more like lymphomas and myelomas and stuff like that, yeah, it, it, these could occur and spread to the spine and cause fractures and affect the neural elements as well. 
So, Dr. Thomas, what currently are you working on? I see that you have a number of publications. Are you working on any particular um, disease process or spinal condition? At the moment, um, yes. Well, currently, the team in, in San Fernando General um, and the young doctors and myself, we sent a, a, to the ethics committee what the latest research that I would like to, to find out about is really patient satisfaction um, with spinal surgery and from from the patient's perspective um, affect, uh, assessing patients view on surgeries that they receive and managing patients expectations what they think about surgery and also how is the information brought to the patient if it's brought in a manner that they understand and they could accept so i think patient satisfaction with spinal surgery that is what we, we are currently um, working on. And how can you be contacted for our listeners out there and for persons who want to reach you? All right. Well, first of all, um, patients out there try to live healthy and, and happy, right? Exercise and proper nutrition and proper socializing because after COVID, you know, it caused a lot of depression. But if you do have anyone of the problems that I spoke about before. I have an office privately in Neuraxis Clinic in Center Medical in Porto Spain. And there's office for sudden patients in Acropolis Medical. That's on a Saturday. And the central patients, uh, Central Medical Clinic. And you know if if you know how it is, if you want to come in the public setting, I think you visit your GP or local health center. And um and um if necessary, you'll be referred to the hospital. Contact numbers, um, I would leave that, but it's really 622-4463 for Neuraxis. So I'll repeat that one because from that office, you could get all the numbers. 622-4463, that's Neuraxis office. And from that office, you'll get all the numbers for the private, the other private offices. All right, thank you, Dr. Thomas. I wanna thank my co-host, Tosca, and for you, Dr. Thomas, for being so educational and informative. And to the listeners out there, do have a great day.